Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food. My guest today is Shamsida Ani, who is the author of Spices and Lime, as well as a finalist on MasterChef Singapore Season 1. We are currently in the Hari Raya season right now, so I've invited her to join me on the podcast so she can share about her family's Hari Raya traditions and also what the whole season means to her. I'm very excited to hear about your story because, I mean, I I watched the previous season of MasterChef Singapore mm-hmm. and I know that you were called uh-huh. the Sambal Queen, right? And um, I've yeah. been seeing the different dishes that you cook in the MasterChef kitchen. I've been following mm-hmm. your Instagram account. And I know that you also have a cookbook, you know, where you advocate for yeah. modern Malay cooking. So can you tell me uh-huh. if, um, you know, you were always proud and interested in your in your heritage and in the cuisine that you grew up eating? Initially, when I started cooking, I was cooking a lot of Western food. It was mainly because I was tired of my mother's Malay cooking because she has like five repertoires that she would repeat daily. You know, like, okay, Monday is like, uh, I am lemak day, Tuesday is rendang day. You know, she would just change the protein some, but it's pretty much the same base. So I was tired of that. I, I, and I wanted to lose weight. So I'm like, you know what, let's start cooking, you know, regardless of what um, cuisine it is. But when I started cooking, you know, like Western food, you know, I, I feel like crave for my mother's cooking. And then I realized that I ha- I don't know how to cook what she's been cooking for us during Hari Raya. You know, I'm, I'm always a sous chef. I'm always like chopping onions for her or doing the cleaning for her, you know, but I never know what goes inside the pot. So mm. one year, um, so my sisters were all, back then I wasn't married yet. So my sister was complaining to me, uh, you know, uh, Ibu, uh, Every year during her raya, I call her and ask her for the rendang recipe. And every year she adds another ingredient or every year she adds another step. You know, it's never the same. And I've been writing it down, you know. I can never get the same recipe, you know, like from her every time. So I'm like, are you sure? Like, cannot be lah, you know. And then, you know, my mom denies it. I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not trying to hide the recipe, you know. I'm not going to bring it to the grave. I want you guys to learn how to cook my dishes. But, you know, it's really about that, you know, the machi level of aggravation that I didn't understand. Yeah, so, and, and my sister also, and some of my sister, is, uh, she's, she's a physio, so she's a science person, and, you know, she probably cooks, you know, to the tea following the recipe. She doesn't, like, deviate here and there. So, yeah, and that's when I realized, okay, I need to learn how to cook what my mom cooks. So that's what I did. The first thing I did was take my pen and paper and, you know, I really saw how much of each ingredient that my mom put in. You know, I didn't understand that aggravation thing until only recently, probably after MasterChef. I think before MasterChef, yeah. Before MasterChef, then I realized that aggravation is something that is innate. Like, you just know when, how much is enough. (laughs) Yeah. And it comes from experience as well, right? Yes, definitely, definitely. So yeah, so that's how I started cooking. Uh, it was essentially just to make sure that I know how to cook my mom's dishes. And I think now, uh, you know, my mom and I have this secret rivalry. You know, every time I give her, like, you know, whenever I cook rendang or whenever I cook something, I always send to her or give to her, you know, when I have extras. And then next week, she'll come back to me. Oh, I make the same dish as you last week. You want, you want some? And I'm like, why do you make the same dish? That's so cute. Oh my gosh. But what were your initial impressions of the cuisine when you first approached it? I was initially very scared, you know, like other any other young Malay person, I suppose. Um, because, you know, you see your mother toiling in the kitchen uh, for hours, basically, you know, like when they prepare for lunch, it, they're preparing for lunch and breakfast. 
or they prepare for dinner at lunch, you know, and that's like half a day. I don't want to be standing over the stove for half a day, you know, and I think a lot of us don't have that time as well because we're working, you know, we're not like, we don't have the luxury like our mothers did, you know, where they are stay-at-home moms and all that. So initially I was very intimidated, very scared, but as I, I, think, I think I was quite a fast learner um, and my mom was... Uh, my mom was having difficulty in trying to keep up with, with my, my, the pace of, my, my pace of cooking in the kitchen. Uh, because like, even when days that I cook Malay food, I'm like, tip, 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 and I'm done in like 45 minutes or half an hour. It's just like, how are you done? Like, how come you're done cooking? I'm like, oh, because I have to plan everything first, you know, that I, 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 don't, like, I don't want to spend two hours in the kitchen like you do. Yeah. You know, and that's why she's like always tired, always crabby, you know. I know how mothers are sometimes and they're too tired from the kitchen. Yeah, so um, that, that's what I aim to advocate. Like, you can still cook your traditional dishes, but you can shorten the time. It's just about proper planning. It's about um, learning to uh, make the process faster like, in the kitchen. That's what, that's what I always tell my friends. Because mm. my friends, they don't cook Malay at all. <laughs> They're like, oh, never mind, if I want Malay food, I'll go back to my mother's house. <laughs> so they cook like, yeah, Western pasta. You know, especially if you have kids, pasta or like grilled chicken is a lot easier, right? Compared mm. to like all your, your rumpah-based dishes uh, in Malay cooking. Yeah, so I think it's something sad as well. That's why um, when I joined MasterChef, I made it a point to bring forth the Malay cuisine because I was getting tired of seeing, you know, especially when you look at the international um, cooking scene, okay, like you watch TV and all that, you know, the, the Westerners, I suppose, they are heavily influenced by Asian, Asian food, you know, Thai food, you know, they pretty much reclaim their own really, they're like, oh, this Thai, you know, everyday they're eating Thai, or like Indian food, everyday they're eating in curries and all that, um, but I'm, I keep asking, why isn't Malay food on the world map? You know, mm. why, why don't we have the um, rendang minang uh, uh, being portrayed in MasterChef UK or US. You know, it was only until like the recent uh, rendang, what the my rendang is not crispy, yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. That you know, everyone said, oh, what's rendang, what's rendang, you know. But before that, Malay food was pretty much you know on the world map. It was pretty much non-existent, and I was sad uh, about that. So when I joined MasterChef and I got through to the top eighteen and eventually the top ten, I told myself, you know what, I'm just gonna keep cooking Malay food. Even regardless of what the, the the brief or like the competition is about, I'm going to cook Malay food. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree with you. I feel that there's not enough representation of uh, Malay cooking. I mean, from a non-Malay perspective, right? I mean, just mm. trying to learn the cuisine, it's so difficult because it's inaccessible because I don't understand Bahasa Malay. And yeah. it's so, yeah. you know, there's a, an added layer of difficulty for me. You know, the only reason why I knew how to cook rampas properly is because I worked at Kenonat, which is, you know, par- yeah. which is like a Malay influenced, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But I mean, if I didn't work at Kenonat, I wouldn't even know how to make something as basic or as fundamental as a rampa, you know, which is so tragic. Exactly. So, you know, you talked about proper planning, you know, uh, to mm. cut down time in the kitchen. Can you give me an example mm. of that? I mean, okay, because I eat, leave, breathe food. So <laughs> pretty much when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, I, I, I plan my time according to, I plan my time according to the, the meal times. You know, especially now with my son being eating eating solid, so I plan. Okay, what time is his meal time? What time is my meal time? What time do I cook and all that? So I I start planning on when do I take out the meat? You know, what when do I start? You know, blending the rumpa and all that. 
you know, uh, and I realized that, um, well, my mother especially, she, even though she was working for like first half of like her life, um, she, she didn't like um, quicken the process of cooking by discussing the, the food, you know, like 24 hours before, you know, putting it in the fridge. She, you know, she would call us like, okay, take out the chicken now, you know. <laughs> I need to cook in like three hours. It better be defrosted when I get home, <laughs> you know. And oh my God, you have no idea how scared we were when we forget to take out the chicken. <laughs> so, you know, um, that's one. And then the second one is, of course, preparing your rumpas in advance. I mean, I don't, I mean, it's always okay for you to take a shortcut and buy instant rumpas. Uh, I tell this to my friends, especially who are afraid of cooking Malay food. You know, if you're afraid, just buy instant rumpas. You know, at least you know what goes inside your food. You know, half of what goes inside your food is already, you can control that. Um, because if you keep buying um, food, uh, you know, you keep buying in and then you order or whatever, it, you can't take control of what goes inside your body. That's, that's what I tell my friends. So for me, first thing is I make sure that, you know, I have the meats ready and then the rumpas ready. And then I plan my time around, okay, when do I want to start cooking and basically like figure out how long the dishes, uh, sorry, the dish will, will be cooking. So, you know, the two minutes part is going to take a long time, right, usually. So that's when, uh, and, and when I'm, when I'm to missing the rumpa, I make sure that I'm doing something else as well. Yeah. I'm like cleaning or, you know, I'm like preparing for tomorrow or whatever, you know. So I, I always multitask when I'm doing the tumis part. So that's how I prepare my process especially. So pretty much I'm usually done with, with cooking for lunch or dinner within 45 minutes or an hour. Yeah. And yeah, to be, yeah, to be honest, MasterChef really helped me with that. <laughs> So, you know, you talked about instant rempa. Where, where do you normally buy it? Is it from the wet market or is it from a supermarket shop? Uh, there's two kinds. The one that's from the wet market or from the supermarket. Um, for me, I only buy instant rempas from the wet market. Okay. Yeah, because I, I prefer to see them, you know, do it by hand. And it's very interesting, you know, you see the achi or the uncle, you know, with all their rempas, all their onions and all the different spices and they're cooking or you want... Uh, rumpa for so too long then they're like dish, 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 you know it's, it's just a magical magical moment like that they're, they're, they're putting like a potion for you so mm-hmm. i like it i like to get it at the white market because of the uh, because of the convenience of the supermarket now there's a lot of instant factory made from pasta mm. yeah which i find that the quality is not as shock it's yeah. not as good yeah so you always have to spam a lot more onions a lot more garlic to add the flavor <laughs> Yeah, you know, when I moved over to Australia, so like uh, Mm -hmm. my mother-in-law actually gave me a lot of those packet um, rumpa, Mm -hmm. right? Like to make, Mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember what it was, but I mean, it was a variety of dishes that use spice paste. And like Uh every time I look at the back of the ingredient list, right, it always has water and like a lot of things like um, citric acid and things like that. And then when you Uh, taste it, it yeah, it just tastes really off. Like it just tastes like, like, it doesn't even have the same body as a typical yeah. rapa. Yes, yes. It's more like a liquid. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. So that's why like, I find that for me, those supermarket rampas, you're doing twice the amount of work we have to add some more onion, some more garlic, some more tea, mm-hmm. you know. So for me, it might as well, I either get from the wet market or I just make it from scratch. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think most young Singaporeans don't even know that there is such a service in the wet markets. Mm-hmm. Like you can actually yeah. go to Spice Uncle or Spice Auntie and yes. ask them to mix up the different uh, rampas for you or spice powders, like curry powders. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have. I used to stay at my mom's place, right? And my mom's uh, the the wet market at my mom's place. There's this very popular uncle and auntie who sells uh, the spices, the rumba. Um, and every weekend there'll be a long queue, and you see like Chinese, Malay, Indian families like they're buying like you know ten packets of rumpas, twenty oh. different types of rumpas, you know. And and then I'm like. Why are they buying so much? You know, my mom's like, oh, they're going to put it in the freezer and then they're just going to store it, you know, one for each day. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of smart, you know? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, especially if you have a big family. Yeah. That's such a good tip, I feel. So, you know, I recently mm-hmm. was checking out your cookbook and um, I saw that on Amazon, the name is different from the actual title. So, like, the actual title yeah. is Spice and Lime. Is it Spice and Lime? Spices and Lime. Recipes from my modern Southeast Asian kitchen. So, that's the title that my editor and I decided to go with. Um, mm. Because we felt that the modern Malay kitchen wouldn't, uh, wouldn't reach out internationally as much as uh, mm. something more generic than Southeast Asia. So, that, that brings my point back to... You know, being a bit disappointed that why isn't Malay food on the world map yet? Mm. So what exactly mm. do you mean by modern Malay? You know, previously you talked about how traditional Malay cooking normally takes like half a day, you know? It's yes. people with luxury of time. So what yeah. do you think is modern Malay cooking to you? For me, modern Malay cooking is essentially using the same recipe, but different techniques. So that's what I do with my cooking. I do a lot. I use the oven a lot. I, I overuse my oven until today I just got it fixed again. <laughs> so, you know, like my rendang recipe, um, I put it in the oven mm. instead of, you know, toiling over the stove every 15 minutes, stirring the pot, making sure that it doesn't burn at the bottom. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure big, you know, major, major restaurants, they use that too. They use the combi oven, you know, they put the rendang in the combi oven and you get the same texture, you know, probably tastes a little bit different. Um, but, you get to the you get to the stage where it is a rendang. So mm. for me, if it saves my time, if it makes my life easier, I'll just embrace the technology. Mm. Yeah. So that's what I advocate, like making use of modern technologies to basically continue cooking your traditional dishes. You know, like I, I still use my you know my batu lesong. I still use those and all, but you know, it's it's in terms of the stirring. You know, the the toiling over the for hours yeah that's the part where I hate the most because when before I started cooking that's what that was what my duty was in the kitchen my yeah. mom would make me stand over the pot and she'd like you better not burn my rendang <laughs> you know every 10 minutes I have to stir the you know and it's not like one kilo of rendang you know it's like five kilos of rendang and it's heavy you know I'm like almost like what 12 13 years old <laughs> oh my gosh yeah yeah so- You've tried both methods, like in the oven as well as on the stove. You feel that the results are the same? The results are definitely not the same. In the oven, you get a nicer texture of the beef, mm-hmm. uh, but it's less um, smoky. Caramelized. You know? Yes, it's less caramelized, definitely. Yeah, it's still, it's still very thick. The gravy is still very thick, but not as thick as you can get it on the stove, definitely. You know, but... For me, if you want it even thicker, then just take it out of the oven and cook it on the stove again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but you're still saving that time of uh, toiling over the stove, stirring it every 10 minutes. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're saving time, so why not do that? Yeah, mm-hmm. and you told me that your dad is actually from the Minang community, right? Yeah. Can you tell me yeah. a little bit about that? I mean, um, so was rendang a huge part of your family growing up? It was definitely a huge part of my family. Um, as much as 
uh, the funny thing is, my mother makes the best rendang when she's not minang. <laughs> this is according to my mom. You know, she she said that she only learned how to cook when she started when she got married to my dad, and my dad was a sailor, so he had to learn how to cook when he was you know on the ship. So I think he was the one who taught my mom, but my mom improvised the recipe, made it her own, and you know, essentially make a very good rendang. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. It's uh, okay. There's two different types of rendang. My mom says that everyday rendang doesn't doesn't need all the ingredients. Okay. Like you don't need to have the daun kunyit. You don't need to have maybe the serai. If you if you have if you're lacking maybe two three ingredients, you know, ah, it's okay lah. Close one eye lah. You know, you can still cook it. It'll still become a rendang. You know. Yeah. But it's a high raya rendang that is different. That you have to have all the ingredients. And what makes uh, Rendang Minang on Hari Raya special is that we use fresh santan. Mm. We don't use the boxed one. We don't use the fresh one from the supermarket. We go to the wet market and we see the uncle, you know, like getting the coconut milk out of the coconut. So mm. that's the best part about uh, Hari Raya Rendang Minang to me. Oh, wow. That sounds fantastic. Yeah. I mean, um, I remember in Candlenut, we used to make Rendang, right? And we, we would just mm. use the packets of fresh coconut milk but i would mm-hmm. i would really want to try the you know the og like you know yeah. make your own coconut milk and all so you, you you normally go to the wet markets and get them to grate mm. it through and then you would buy it whole yeah. add hot water and squeeze it yourself yes my mom would do that mm. yeah and you would yeah. would so, you use both the first press and the second press yeah my mom's like i'm not going to waste any i'm just going to use everything you can really taste the difference you know uh, like there was one time my my mom was a bit unwell, so she just used you know the packet fresh sandan, and my sister and I were like so disappointed. Ah, this is not rendang hari raya <laughs> because you can really taste the difference. And do you actually make um your own karisik as well? The rendang that I grew up with doesn't have karisik. Wow. Oh. And actually, traditional rendang minang because rendang minang comes from Indonesia, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have the rendang negeri, which is which is which comes from North Malaysia. So basically it's a diaspora of the Minang community, you know, Minang Kawa community, they, they travel and they uh, are all over the world, basically. Mm. So the ones from the North, from Malaysia, are the ones that uses karisik. Yeah, so from from the South, from Indonesia, we don't use karisik. So I'm not the only one. I have a few friends whose families also don't use karisik. And I think we are so minority that everyone who else, everyone else who uses karisik look down on us like, how come your rendang got no karisik? <laughs> yeah. when, when I was doing research, um, I, I came across a lot of articles that say that karisik is like the heart and the soul of rendang. So, you know, it was really quite <laughs> shocking when you told me that your version has no karisik. Um, yeah. And I think we were also talking about rendang tuk. Yes, yeah. correct. So can you yeah. tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, so rendang tuk is uh, the ultimate stage of rendang. So the entire process of making rendang, there's such a term called merendang. It's, mm. it's a verb lah. Yeah. So when you when you make rendang, there's three stages. Mm. So there's um gulai. There's the gulai, and then there's the kalio, and then eventually the rendang. Mm. So rendang tuk is the ultimate because it's really dry, mm-hmm. um and it's to the point where it's actually preserved already in own uh, rempah. And you can actually leave it out for like, you know, a few days without having to refrigerate it. I mean, if you look back, you know, in the olden times, they don't have a fridge. They don't have like reheating instruments or appliances, right? 
So Jordan soap was essentially the way for them to preserve the leaf because beef is ex- was expensive back then. Mm. So yeah, and but this is that right now we don't have the time, we don't have the luxury of time to cook it until it's like really really thick and dry. Mm. So we usually get to the point where it's a kalio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what about your family's preference? Because I I understand that the traditional rendang in Indonesia is like very very dry, like what you said. Mm-hmm. But in Malaysia and Singapore, mm-hmm. we prefer we seem to prefer like a more wetter style, like more of the kaya yeah. um style, yeah. right? So what is your family? Yes, preference? Yeah. We like it midway. We don't like it too dry. Mm-hmm. We don't like it too gravyish. So my mom will cook her rendang until it's there's only a little bit of gravy you know it's like there's not enough for you to scoop with a spoon but it's enough for you to dip it with ketupat oh okay yeah yeah so it's like this sweet spot yeah you know speaking about celebratory dishes right i i came across your book on i i can't remember whether it was google books or nlb's website and i was scrolling through it and i saw that you actually had a recipe in there for sgp which is sambal goreng and yeah. I'm surprised that you would actually include such a recipe in a cookbook. You know, in this age, everyone wants to give like easy and like, you know, easy recipes with short ingredient lists. So what was your thought yeah. process behind that? When I wrote my book, I wanted the book to be like something like a, like a guide for newbies, you know, for basically it's a lot for my friends who don't cook. You know, I want to give them, you know, like, hey, you guys need to learn how to cook. It's not just to, you know, to please your husband or what. No, I'm not asking you guys to do that. You know, but it's more of like feeding your family and like taking care of uh, your, your health, taking care of what goes inside your food, as well as keeping traditions alive. And that's why um, when when I decided to add in the Sama Gore Pengantin recipe, I was like, you know what? Only the brave will try this recipe, but I want this recipe in here because I want people my age, I want youngsters to start cooking traditional dishes more. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want them to just rely on, you know, going to Haja Maimuna and just grab a, a packet or, you know, two packets of, of summer goreng pegantin. You know, I want them to learn like the laborious process of making these foods because it's really a labor of love. You know, if, if it's easy for you, you can, instead of frying the, the individual proteins, right, you can just chuck it in the air fryer. You can just chuck, chuck it in the grill setting of your oven. I mean, really, it's, it's really about making the process simpler for you, you know. But essentially, you're still cooking a traditional dish, you know, and that's what's important. Yeah, yeah I totally agree with you. And, um, you know, I feel that what, whatever you make at home will be so different from what you can get at the Nasi Padang store or at eateries, you know. Because, you yeah. know, I, I grew up eating sambal goreng at the Nasi Padang uh-huh. store. And I always get this impression that it's just, oh, long beans, uh, tofu, tempeh, and prawns, stir-fried with rempa. And then Hafi, who is my collaborator on seasonings, told me about uh, how her family only cooks sambal goreng during Hari Raya. I was like, huh? But isn't it like an everyday kind of dish? But she was like, no, you know, there's offal, there is um, beef. Yeah. And then when I really delved into it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is one of the most complex and laborious dishes ever, but it doesn't give, uh, it doesn't get enough airtime. Essay rendang, yeah. right? Yes, yes. You know, people say rendang is tedious. Wait till you make sambal goreng pengantin. It's, it's like the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I love that it celebrates offal because a lot of people, I feel... Um, are quite yeah. averse to eating offal. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. But um, yeah. would you say that sambal goreng pengantin is something that every Malay would like? Yeah, definitely. You know, it's uh, it's something that we look forward to at weddings. You know, it's like there's there's like a secret benchmark. You know, like oh, that's the best wedding because there's sambal goreng pengantin. If the if the wedding has no sambal pengantin, uh, sambal goreng pengantin style, people will be like. Mm, the food was okay, <laughs> you know. It's it's really like uh, because it's it's so tedious for you to make, you know. And it, the ingredients are expensive. You have to fry each protein, you know, individually, and then you have to that. Essentially, the base is similar to a rendang. Mm. It's just it's just the frying of the individual proteins and cutting it into small pieces that makes it really really tedious. Mm. Yeah. yeah, actually, before I made my first sambal goreng, um. I was looking at the ingredient list and the steps of making it and it's so similar to rendang because you have the spice yeah. mix and then you have yeah. coconut that is reduced down until it yeah. like coats all the ingredients, right? So yeah. I was like asking my contributors for seasonings. I was like, yeah. why would people make both rendang and sambal goreng, you know? Since like they are so yeah. similar in method and ingredients. But they were like, oh, just make it and then you, you see the difference. And then after I made it, yeah. it tasted like completely different dishes. Right, right. It really is it's really amazing how the offer, you know, whatever protein that you put in, it makes a difference to the the gravy itself, to the base of the, the rumpa itself. I think, you know, because you're using prawns, you're using uh beef lung, you're using you know, like um what do you call it? Uh sorry, beef pieces as well and you fry it. You know, it gives a different dimension to the taste and the texture of the food. So you mix it with the rumpa, it's a whole new other level. Yeah. yeah, and you know what is the game changer for me? It was that the long beans are blanched or like cooked separately, right? And then you add it right yeah. at the end. I was like, oh my god, that yeah. is so much thoughtful thoughtfulness and care and meticulousness yeah. that goes into the dish. Like you might think that it's an everyday dish, but there is so much artistry in it. Non-Malays like me need to uh-huh. understand that it is. A dish that is not like an everyday dish. It's like so much effort. When when people talk about sambal goreng, right? They always ask, "Oh, sambal goreng biasa or sambal goreng pengantin?" So sambal goreng biasa is the one that you you have at your nasi padang store. You know, the tofu, the long beans, tempe. Yeah. So that's like to us, that's a vegetable dish. <laughs> yeah. And I know it's not a vegetable dish. Yeah. So that's our vegetable dish, you know. And then you have the fancier sambal goreng and sambal goreng pengantin. You know, now with uh, Hari Raya coming up soon, I think when this episode goes live, it would already have been Hari Raya. <laughs> I would love to, to ask what the whole, you know, season of Hari Raya means to you personally. Oh, wow. Uh, I think it's a season of, I mean, essentially, Hari Raya is supposed to be a period of forgiving, you know, um, loving, you know, and um, most important for me is keeping traditions. Um, because uh, for me, um, growing up, Hari Raya was always something I look forward to. And then they came, they get, they, they came to a point in my life where our family dynamics changed and Hari Raya was different. But I was insistent on making sure that we still had the same traditions, you know, and that year, that year, that was the year that my mom was taking a step back and she's like, I don't want to celebrate Hari Raya this year. I don't want to cook. I don't want to make it too much. And then, you know, when Hari Raya came around, she herself felt something was missing, you know, and she's like, you know what, let's just go to the market and get stuff, you know. And so, yeah, we just kept on the tradition, you know, no matter how life changes, you know, the traditions are something that you want to continue each year during Hari Raya. And yeah. right now, when I have a family of my own, you know, my husband's excited because his he, he, his, his family is um, 
more of Indian, Indian Muslim, North Indian, Pakistan heritage. So they don't really have Malay dishes on Hari Raya. They usually have biryani. So my husband was very excited when when we moved to our own place for our, you know, and he's like, you're going to cook all the Raya dishes, right? You're going to make rendang, right? You're going to make ketupat, right? I'm like, yes, yes, I'm going to make all this, you know, but you got to help. <laughs> so yeah, it's about keeping the traditions, basically. And, um, you know, what more, what better way to keep traditions alive than through food, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the best way that I know how. <laughs> mm. You know, mm. it's very interesting that you talked about how, you know, you didn't, like, like your mom decided to not do it for, for one year and then she felt that something was missing. I feel that we all fall prey to that because it happens every single year and then, like, you kind of take it for granted, right? Because you grew up um, having all these customs and traditions. Before mm-hmm. I moved to, to Australia, I didn't really like Chinese New Year because I felt uh-huh. that it was like very obligatory, right? You go to people's house and like yeah. make small talk and then like it's just mm. like a lot of food. So when I first moved to Australia in my first year, I was like, ah, it's okay, I'm not going to do anything for Chinese New Year. Oh. Be fine. <laughs> but I tell you, once you start looking on Instagram and like when that time comes around and you didn't eat any festive food, like even something yeah. as simple as a steamboat, I felt like so homesick. I was like, oh my gosh, oh. can I do anything um, to mark this season, you know, or mark yeah, this yeah. So I can totally relate, relate to that. So what are yeah. some of your fondest memories of Hari Raya or the Ramadan period? Um, I think learning how to make the ketupat. Uh, I think I was nine or ten. Yeah, apparently, and that, apparently that, that's late in my family. If you learn how to make ketupat at nine or ten, it's considered late because my siblings all learned by the time they were seven. Wow. You know, and I remember, I remember because my mom, you know, like what I said, she always makes, she doesn't make like 50 pieces, she makes like 300 pieces. You know, and it's like a sidekick as well. She she takes orders, you know, because last time, you know, she had child labor. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I remember I was, she was, she was, my mom was struggling to teach me. And then she was like, you know what? I can teach you. You go and ask one of her sisters to teach you. And she just went to the market. So my sister came to me and I was like, you better learn how to do this by the time Ibu comes back from the market. And eventually I managed to learn how to make the ketupat in one hour, you know. It's just my sister, my, I guess the way my sister taught me that made, made me understand better. So that's one of the, I still remember, you know, recalling, like sitting down on the sofa crying and I'm like, I don't know how to make. <laughs> so cute. But yeah, but you know, it's something that I, I still do, you know, up to now. I'm, I, I know how to make ketupat even if it's like a year hiatus. Once I get the beef in my hand, it's like muscle memory already. Mm. Yeah, so that's that's one of my fondest one, and of course the second one is um, Ramadan. Um, I think just gathering at the table for a meal, you know, and everyone's waiting for the time to break fast, uh, you know, and waiting for the azan, you know, it's just that that short five minutes where everybody sits at the dinner table and we just like anxiously like we don't know whether we want to talk because you know we might not hear the azan, you know. <laughs> so that's that's what I remember most fondly of my childhood um, during Ramadan and Raya. Mm. Yeah. And, um, you know, this year is going to be the second Hari Raya that is impacted by COVID, right? Mm-hmm. How was, mm-hmm. Do you feel like the difference before and after COVID is like really immense? Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, um, so I gave birth last year, right? And after, right after I gave birth, it was a lockdown. 
So it was the circuit breaker. And when Hari Raya, and when Ramadan and Hari Raya came around, I was very, very sad. I think I was dealing with a bit of postnatal depression as well because I couldn't be with my family when I just had a baby. You know, and I was excited to go out as a family, three of us, you know, him in his cute little bajukuro, you know, probably collecting uh, green packets, you know. I was excited for that, introducing him to the rest of my family. But we couldn't do that. Um, but this year, thankfully, you know, we get to at least visit two houses per day. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to make do. Uh, I'm trying to keep my, my spirits up, you know. I'm like, you know what, let's just, let's just continue with Hairaya, you know. And like, we can, if some people we can't manage to visit, we can just call them, video call them, you know, send over some food, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah, I'm just trying to make sure that my spirits are up, you know, because it's still Hairaya lah. <laughs> hmm. I would also like yeah. to ask about the Ramadan Bazaar because I, I think this year mm. is way smaller in scale, right? Did you, do you miss? There's, 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 there's no bazaars at all. There's like um, pseudo bazaars, like coffee shops turning into bazaars basically. Yeah. Uh, do I miss the bazaars? Um, that's a difficult question. <laughs> Back then when I was a teen, I loved the bazaars. Um, when I entered the adulthood, I started to lose them. <laughs> Why? I think it's because I think I think it's just you know there's like too much uh too much noise you know and like um there's too many people but of course you know there'll be there'll be one or two days that I still sneak into the bazaar like, I still go to the bazaar get my wadi get my burger ramli yeah I think I miss burger ramli the most mm. yeah that's that's the thing I miss the most about not having bazaar yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I would also love to ask you about kuih because kuih is a big yeah. part of, um, you know, Ramadan during the preparation phases of making yeah, yeah. and enjoying it during Hari Raya. Uh-huh. Was kuih making a big thing in your household? Yes, it was, uh, especially for my sisters. Uh, again, I was their sous chef. I was the one like rolling the chocolate chip, rolling the kuih tart, you know. That's all I was allowed to do, you know. And my mom loves to make this... Um, this traditional Boyanese kuih, it's called kachiputan. I don't know if you've seen it. It's like just dough, ro- um, balls of dough, really small. If they're like, yeah, it's basically like this small. Oh, roll in sesame seeds, is it? Yes. Okay, yes. okay. Yeah, it's called kachiputan, but you know, when I was small, I call it kuih bomb. Because it looks like a bomb to me, you know. <laughs> and yeah, my, my mom would, you know, make the dough and she'll on the TV and she'll give me one big bowl like okay watch tv do the ball for me and yeah i'll probably be rolling the dough for like two three hours you know until i'm like hey, i cannot ready <laughs> i'm too tired i want to sleep you know then my mom will take it away from me and then she'll continue yeah so that's so that's what that's all i was uh, allowed to do basically help my mom and my sister to make the kui so actually when i grew up right when my sisters moved out and when i'm when i got married i still have a bit of phobia from making kui so I'm leaving it to the last minute and I have the mood because I don't want like oh I don't want to dread it, you know, I don't oh, I have to make kuih. Yeah, yeah. And so is is your son now your sous chef in the kitchen? Yes, right now. He is curious, he is super curious. Whenever I'm like stirring the pot or when I'm blending, right? When I'm blending my rumpa, ever since he was like what two months, I brought him to the kitchen with me, put him on the rocker and now I'm like preparing the rumpa. He has never cried at the sound of the blender. He has never cried at the sound of like, you know, like the rumpa being splattered in the oil. He's like actually very curious. So right now when I'm stirring my rumpa when I'm tumis, doing the tumis, right? He will like tuck my shirt or dress. Like he wants me, he wants to see what I'm doing. So 
So yeah, that's why I just carry him and I just let him stir a bit lah. And surprisingly, he is he has a really Malay taste. He loves ayam lemak cili padi. Wow. And he loves tempe. Yeah, like tempe is fried in like cumin and coriander and he's a happy boy. Wow, so it was a very natural process, an organic process. Like you didn't have to yeah. really like enforce this tradition no. or heritage. No, on no. Wow. I think I think it was really from the stomach because when I was pregnant with him, I couldn't eat Western food. So when I was pregnant with him, I was eating a lot of Indian food, a lot of Malay food, a lot of sambal and everything. So I think it's just a natural for him. Like now he's like on solid. He's like, okay, I want Malay food. <laughs> I have one last question for you. So, um. Mm. For people who are unfamiliar with the cuisine, how do you think um, they can get started? Okay, this is a two-part question. So how can okay, they get started? Okay. And also, I think a lot of people might have the con- preconception that Malay food is very greasy, you know, because of the amount of oil they use to, to miss, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, what are some fresh tasting dishes that you recommend? Okay, I think there's three main Malay dishes that you got to learn how to cook. These are, these are simple, basic, and you can involve them to other dishes. So first is the sambal kumis. Sambal kumis uh, is the base for a lot of Malay dishes, basically. You know, you can add more onions to the sambal kumis and add, more, add some tomato sauce, and it becomes your mee goreng base. Mm. You know, uh, you can add, uh, what else you can, basically there's a few other, uh, sambal, uh, sorry, Ayam merah as well. You add more onions to it, you add more tomatoes to it, it becomes your ayam merah sauce. So that's the first one. So what to me? Second is your ayam lumak, ayam lumak cili padi. I think that is the simplest because um, there's recipes out there that doesn't use, doesn't, you don't even need to miss the, the, the rempah. You just boil the rempah and then you add the santan, sorry, the chicken and then the santan. You know, so and that makes, makes the cooking time a lot faster as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then thirdly, I think I think rendang. Lah. Rendang I think people just get intimidated by the the number of ingredients in the in, in the recipe. Like if you look take a look at my book, the recipe is actually very long. Mm-hmm. The the ingredients is very long. You need a lot of stuff. But essentially you just blend everything together and then you just do it. You know, and once you get that going, uh, you know, you can Pick one dish off your list. Okay, I made a very difficult Malay dish. I think I throw already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so those three are, to me, is, uh, are the three dishes that people need to learn how to make. Then after that, they can venture on to sambal goreng, you know, or other dishes. Lah. Mm. Mm, okay. Yeah. So I'll ask the second mm. part again, just in case, you know, it okay. wasn't clear. Yeah. So I feel that in the media, you know, Malay food has been characterized as something that is very greasy and very oily. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe in a lot of Singaporeans' minds, that might be the case also. So, you know, what is your response to that? And what are some, you know, um, lighter, healthy Malay dishes that you can recommend? Oh, there's a lot. You know, actually, if you look back, right, um, Malay dishes, the popular Malay dishes, the rendang, the ayam, uh, ayam rendang or whatever it is, the greasy ones, you see, it's not, it's not many, it's just a few. And this, these dishes are actually special occasion dishes. You know, traditionally, if you go back, you know, 50 years ago, beef wasn't, you know, as accessible as it is now. You know, chicken as well. My mom keeps telling me that, oh, we only eat chicken on Hari Raya. Like, every other day, it was just veggies and veggies, fish, 
and whatever that was caught by my late grandfather. So essentially, our traditional recipes are a lot of vegetarian, pescatarian, you know, or some even vegan, you know. It's just that in recent times, because, you know, Malay, the Malay community gets more affluent, you get easier access to beef, to chicken, to all the fancy meats, especially. Yeah, so it, actually, Malay food is not really easy. It's just, you got to choose. I mean, if you go to the Nasi Padang store, there's a lot of vegetable dishes. You have the lemak uh, ubi, And I think that's one of the healthiest dishes, okay. you know. Yeah, I love that too. You pair it with ikan bakar or you pair it with ayam bakar. It's very healthy, essentially. You know, yet a bit of sambal bladu. That's my favorite combination. Which will be ikan bakar and sambal bladu. Oh my uh, God. I eat that like, yeah, the sea, right? Yes, the live eating right now. I, I, I probably think so. <laughs> I am. It's been so long. <laughs> yeah, so that's one of my favorite combinations. Uh, what else is there? Um, uh, oh, soup, soup ketola which is basically uh, lupa, uh, lupa soup. Um, mm-hmm. They cook it with, sometimes they add um, quail eggs, and then they add the, uh, uh, we call it suun, what, what do you guys call it? Glass noodles, glass noodles, yes. Oh, we call it tanghun. Yeah. Ah, yes, yes, we call it suun. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that is also another dish that's, uh, that my nanny used to cook for us when we were younger. Uh, and you pair that with tempe goreng, you know, mm-hmm. that's, essentially a health, very healthy meal, you know, and that these are the everyday Malay dishes that don't get the same amount of publicity as they run down because mm. they are boring, you know, they are your everyday dishes. It's soupy, it's hearty, uh, but of course, you want to highlight the more popular ones, the more delicious ones, right? And that those are the dishes that get the flag for being greasy and unhealthy. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's so fascinating, you know, like, I've never ever heard of that lufa soup. Like, I'm ah, gonna yeah. check that out. I've written down yeah. so many notes just in my yeah. conversation <laughs> with you. And I can't wait to start cooking in my kitchen and try out all these flavors. Yeah, so it's thank you good. so much for coming on the show and for sharing no about your heritage and about your own family life. You know, I really appreciate mm. this. Thank you so much, Pamela, for having me. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. My guest on this show was Shamsida Ani. Also, Singapore Noodles has launched a quarterly food publication called Seasonings, made in collaboration with Hafi. Our very first issue gives you an insider's view to Ramadan and Hari Raya food culture. You can order it through our website, sgpnoodles.com, Each purchase goes towards the work that I do at Singapore Noodles, whether it is the testing of recipes or having podcast conversations like this one that you've just heard. And it just helps to make this platform a way more sustainable one. So thank you all for your support once again, and I'll catch you all next week.